In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find Psalm 139. So, of course, we completed our study through John last week, and um, we'll pick up another book very soon and begin to work through. But as I was thinking and just praying and, and looking this week, um, came across Psalm 139. And so what we're going to do is this week and next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Psalm 139. We'll take half of it today, half of it next Sunday, and just see what the Lord will speak to us through, through this psalm. And so be finding that. We'll read it together in just a minute. But I wonder if any of you remember the name Bob Ross. Anybody remember that name? Some of us are old enough to remember that name. Um, my kid, my boys even knew. I asked them who Bob Ross was, and I was surprised they knew. And because m many of us, for whatever reason, I remember sitting in front of the TV watching this man with the cool hair and a very soft, soothing voice paint on a canvas. Remember that? Remember watching that? And I remember how interesting it was because he was starting to paint and you wouldn't know exactly what, what it is. And by the time he finished, right, it would be a beautiful picture. He would take this blank canvas and stroke by stroke of the paintbrush, he would make something very beautiful. And by the end, you're like, oh, nice. You know, he did it. Well, I want you to see that, that our knowledge of God is sort of like that blank canvas. And when we come into this world, we're, we're born, we're young children, we begin to start getting an idea of who God is by seeing things around us, by our parents or other people around us teaching us about who God is. But our view of Him is still skewed. Some of you wear glasses. You know how it is when you have glasses and there's stuff on there, it's dirty or it's... Um, fingerprints or something like that on there, and, and, and you, you have to wipe them off to see. Our view of God, maybe even today, is somewhat skewed or somewhat blurry. Some, in some way, our spiritual vision is impaired because we have a sin nature in us that distorts our view of God. And what I want you to see is that the main way and the best way for us to truly know who God is is by hearing biblical teaching and preaching and by reading the Bible ourselves. But reading it, hearing it, and just intaking the Bible helps us to have a correct view of God. There was a writer back in the last century by the name of A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is one of my favorite old books. I'd recommend it if you want a book on the attributes of God. And in the book, Tozer said this, I think I have this up there for you to look at, Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He goes on to say this, for this reason, the most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time might say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. He says, Tozer says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our own mental image of God. 
This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the church as well. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And you see that in people's lives and in the lives of a church. If our view of God is big and great and all-worthy and awesome, then that will reflect in how we pray, how we sing, how we worship, how we receive his word, and how we live. But if our view of God is low and distorted and blurry and not biblical and not right, if our view of God is base, as Tozer said, or low, then that will also reflect in how we pray, how we worship, how we see church, and how we serve God, right? And so it's no wonder that many people see the things of God and the church and other related spiritual things as not that important because their view of God is skewed or messed up. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah saw a vision of God and it said he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah saw the glory of God and the angels singing holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live, I live amongst people of unclean lips. And then God said, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Remember that? Isaiah called a picture of who God truly was, and it changed his life. I'm encouraging us in the next two weeks to consider what our view of God is. And notice that Psalm 139 is a very key stroke of the paintbrush for us to see who God is and what he is like. Well, if you have your Bible there, look at Psalm 139 and before we read it, can you tell me who wrote it? It probably tells you there in the scripture. And even if it didn't tell us, I think we could guess because it's so poetic and it's so Davidic. It's so of David. And it's about his relationship with God and sheds light on that spiritual experience between David and his God. And, and I'll, before we read it, let me say this. If your thoughts of God this morning are too small, this is a great chapter to meditate on. If you think this morning, I need to be renewed in my thoughts about God, this is a great chapter to meditate on. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, I, I've enjoyed this service so far. I believe God is great. Let this just be another reason to worship with what we read in Psalm 139. So we're going to read the first 12 verses of Psalm 139. Listen closely. If you're there, say word. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou encompassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Where shall I go from thy spirit? Or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, 
Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. In these 12 verses, I'm going to give you just two points this morning, two main points that are attributes of God to, I hope, give us reason to worship Him even more than we already do. The first one is this, God is omniscient. When we say God is omniscient, we mean that that God knows everything about what? Everything. God knows everything. And He knows us, of course, completely. I've had debates with people before about different doctrines, and I'll say things like this. God has ordered all things. God has ordained all things. God not only knows what's going to happen, but God has planned and ordained all that would come to pass. And I've had those conversations, those little debates with people, and they will always say this. Well, God knows everything. And I always respond, duh, <laughs> right? Has God ever at any time learned something? What would happen if God could learn something new? He would fail to be God. Because our God, the God of the Bible, is all-knowing. He knows everything. And I love how David starts this psalm because I was reading about how many of the people of David's time, the, the pagans, the ungodly, they would view their gods as far off, or indifferent toward them, or maybe even angry toward them. But look at what he says in verse 1. He says, O Lord, Yahweh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. David reminds us that our God knows and cares about us. Again, God has perfect knowledge. He knows, I think it was Tozer who said, God knows instantly and effortlessly everything. He is all-knowing. And so I hope that's an attribute of God that you have in your mind and in your heart that, yes, our God is omniscient. He knows everything. Again, if you look at verse 1, he says, Lord, you've searched me and you, you know me. Now, the word know in verse 1 is not just informational knowledge, but it is an intimate knowledge. It is to fully know. David says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You truly, intimately, fully know me. I found a couple other scriptures to relate to this. In Jeremiah 12, 3, he says, you, O Lord, know me and you see me. How about in in, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus reminds us of God's knowledge when he says, God knows even the numbers of what? Hair or lack thereof on your head. God knows everything. Isn't that crazy? But God knows everything. You see, seven times in verses 1 through 5, and you can go back and count if you don't trust me, but I counted seven times in verses 1 through 5 that we see the word you or the speaking of God. And to me, those seven times remind us of God's divine involvement in our lives. But if we're all honest, and I don't care if you're on this side of the room, this side of the room, or right down the middle, if we're all honest, there have been times, and maybe even today for some people, 
where you feel like this, is God there? Right? Has he left me? Has he abandoned me? I don't really feel his presence. I don't really know his presence. Is God even there? Let this scripture be a reminder. As over and over again, David says, Lord, you, Lord, you have done this. You have searched me. You have known me. Let that be a reminder that God has not left you. He has not abandoned you. And he is directly involved in your life. That big decision you're trying to make or that situation you're trying to handle, know that God is directly involved in that situation. How so? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Lord, you know, you know when I sit down, you know when I get up, you know my thoughts from afar. Isn't that crazy? God knows what we're going to think about before we think about it. Verse 3, you search out my path, my lying down. And then he says, you are acquainted with all my ways. Verse 3, you, you know all my ways. Again, God is all-knowing. Knows everything about everything, including us. In our study of John last year in John 2, do you remember when it said Jesus was talking to some people and it said Jesus knew what was in the heart of man? He, just, he knew what they were thinking, what they were feeling, what was in their heart. And that reminds us of God's direct involvement. Many people, including some people in this room, grew up without a father or a mother. I'm not sure. Different people I know have different situations. Some were blessed to have all their, both their parents. But I want you to know that when it comes to being a child of God, right, our father is always there. Right? Never abandoning us, never leaving us. He, he is acquainted with all our ways. Verse 4. As we continue to think about God's omniscience, it says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That's kind of scary. God knows what we're going to say, right, before we say it. My application on this verse is knowing that God knows what we're going to say should not be a license to say whatever we want to say, right? Well, God already knows. I'll just, I'll just tell this lie. God knows. It'll be all right. Or I'm just going to slander this person to the side over here. God knows. That's not right, is it? We don't, we don't have that license to sin. But I will, I will take it the other way and say, knowing that God knows what's on my tongue and what I will be speaking that should encourage me to, to clean up the things I say, to be more holy in my speech. As Ephesians said, as Paul said in Ephesians, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And when he said that, he was speaking about, the word corrupt means rotten fruit. You ever seen rotten fruit? Nasty stuff, isn't it? He said, when you speak unwholesome language, inappropriate language, lying, gossiping, slander, those types of things, he said, you're letting rotten fruit come out of your mouth. And so my application for us here is knowing that God knows what we're going to say should encourage us to, to clean up the things we say. I want to encourage you this morning, if, and we all do at times, right, have issues with these types of sins of the tongue, sins of the mouth. I want to encourage you to uh, pray about that this morning. Verse 5. In verse 5, he says, you beset me, or to say it another way, you, you hem me in behind you before and you lay your hand upon me now this means that God puts up a barrier around his people 
And we know David often was running for his life. He was in bad situations. And he, when he prayed this, he's like, God, I need you desperately to be my refuge and desperately to protect me because people were actually trying to kill him. And so for him, this was a very you know, physical prayer as well. Um, for us, this might be more spiritual at times, but the same thing still applies that we pray for a barrier. And Nick even prayed it this morning, and he didn't know I was going to talk about this. He prayed for a hedge of protection. Have you ever heard that before? A hedge of protection. And I don't really know why we say that. I don't know where that prayer came from. I've just heard people say it over the years. Uh, I've said it. I've prayed it. Um, there's a Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins. You ever heard of him? He has a funny bit about, is the hedge really what we should be praying for? He's like, is Satan, you know, does Satan not have a pair of clippers to cut through the hedge to get to us? But I get the, you get the point, right? A hedge, a barrier, a wall around us that God would be protecting us. Because if God put the hedge up, that hedge is going to hold, right? No matter what God puts up, it'll, it'll hold. And so the idea here, though, as you read verse 5, is that David is protected on all sides, and something can only get through to him if God allows that thing to get through to him. And I think that's important because, yes, our future is secure. Skip down to verse 16. If you have your Bible there, look down to verse 16. Is our future secure in the Lord? He says, Thine eyes did see my substance yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members or my days were written. God is, he says, written out my days. So our future is secure. Yes, we have family stuff to deal with, financial stuff, emotional stuff, relationship stuff, life stuff. But as we trust him, we can trust that our future is secure in him. Romans 8, 28, right? We know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You see, as we read these verses, I, I could see how some people might read this as a negative, like God is always watching. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's always watching but I really believe David means this not in that way, not as a, uh, as a, scare, a scare tactic, but I think David means this as a comfort to us. A comfort to us that God is there. It's kind of like when your child is scared and they run and jump in your arms and you hold that child. They might still be scared, but they feel safe in your arms, right? And so to know that God knows everything, to know that God is omniscient, we know we have a Father who, again, holds us. Verse 6, he concludes this part by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain. It reminds me of Isaiah 55 where it says, God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. I was thinking of an illustration here. A, a good doctor gathers all the information possible so that he can best care for the patient, right? He gets all the information so that he can best care for the patient. Well, listen, God knows all the information about us, past, present, and future, and he knows how best to care for us. So his omniscience, yes, it should be a reminder for us to live more holy lives, but it's also a reminder that he knows he is all wise and knows how to care for us in every situation. 
God's knowledge of us is not passive or distant, but active and engaged. And to conclude this first point, I think this is important because we need to know that even when we are in a valley, even when things don't go our way, God is still worth our worship. Say that again. Even if things don't go our way, we get the wrong, di- the bad diagnosis, or something goes the, not the way we want it in life, He is still worthy of our worship, no matter what. And so I say to myself this morning, God, you know everything, you're omniscient, you know me completely, and no matter what comes my way, I will trust my Savior, Jesus. Number two. The second point, not only is God omniscient, but God is omnipresent, which means what? He is everywhere. Again, Tozer speaks about this in the knowledge of the holy, and he says, God has no limits. And he says, this brings to us comfort and assurance. Tozer again explains how because God is everywhere does not mean we won't suffer, right? Because a child can still be scared in its parents' arms, can still, can still be worried in its parents' arms. But God's presence does not mean life is easy, but it does mean we can be secure even when life is hard. So verse 7, look at this. It says, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? These are rhetorical questions. Where can I go um, from you? And Again, let me quote Jeremiah 23, 24, where he says, Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Isn't it a funny idea, and we do this, by the way, that we try to hide from God? Isn't that funny? Isn't that silly? Like, I'll do this sin in a certain place where God won't see it. Or I'll go here, go... Isn't that insane? Where can we go that God cannot see? Where can we go that God cannot hear? Where can we go that God does not know? Nowhere, right? So what he asks here rhetorically. Think about a a biblical illustration, Jonah. Remember Jonah? God says, Jonah, why don't you go preach the word? And Jonah goes the opposite way. He gets in a boat and tries to go away from God. How did that work out for Jonah? (laughs) Not very good, right? And eventually God put him in the right direction. But he went. And he ran the opposite way, and it's kind of like playing hide-and-seek. I remember playing hide-and-seek with my kids, my boys years ago, and one of them, I don't know which one it was, ran to hide behind a curtain, right? So it's hide-and-seek, they're behind a curtain, and the curtain goes down to about their knees. So you can see the bottom of their legs, right? But as a parent, you just play along with it, but I can clearly see you there. That's what it's like when we try to hide from God. He can clearly see. He's like, I see you. But... I give you that just because I think that's important to know. We can't run from him, but I don't really think that's the main point of verse 7. You see, I don't think David here is trying to get away from God's presence. I think he's simply saying, based on the first six verses as well, that, and the next verses, he's saying, you know it all and you are everywhere, so your knowledge is greater than I can grasp. So where can I go? Nowhere. It's rhetorical. God's not limited by location. Look at verse 8. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed there, it says in hell, which is Sheol, which also speaks, that word usually speaks of the grave, the afterlife. You are there. 
Listen to what Spurgeon said about the presence of God in these various places. This is deeper than we're going to get into this morning, but Spurgeon said, The presence of God's glory is in heaven. The presence of his power is on earth. The presence of his justice is in hell. And the presence of his grace is with his people. That's an interesting thing, right? God is even in hell in the sense that his justice is there. His love's not there. His grace is not there, but his justice. Interesting. Interesting side note. But in verse 8, he says, heaven, hell, the grave, Sheol. The bottom line is this. You can't get away from his presence. Verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, he says, if I take the wings of the morning, which I think that refers to when like the sun rises and you see light go across the land. I think he's saying here, the wings of the morning, very beautiful poetic verse here. You know, no matter where I look across the land, no matter where I run through the desert, through the through the wilderness, God, you're there. And then he says this, and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. I looked this up. I didn't know this, obviously. A place called the Mariana Trench. It's in the Pacific Ocean, south of Japan, southeast of Japan. They say it's the deepest part of the ocean, over seven miles deep. It's pretty deep. Over seven miles deep. They said if you put Mount Everest in that in the ocean there, the tip of Mount Everest would still be over a mile down into the ocean. So it's deep. It's the deep end. But if you and I could somehow go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, could we get away from God there? No. He's everywhere. He is there. And I love what he says in verse 10. No matter where I go, in all these places, your hand shall lead me and hold me. It wasn't just for David that God knew and is in these places, but it's that God is with him in these places to hold him and to care for him and to be there. No matter what would come his way, that God would work in his life. Final two verses, 11 and 12. Verse 11, and think about the first part of this. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me. Surely the darkness shall cover me. Here I'm reminded that the longer we live, the more opportunities we will have for dark days, right? For things to go wrong in our lives. And the Bible is not silent on that, is it? Listen to Psalm 88, 6. He wrote, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. How about Psalm 22, which Christ would later recite from the cross? When he wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And so David, he says, The darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness, verse 12, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, and darkness is as light with you. How can David make such beautiful Theological statements. And I like what one writer said. He said David had a theological education. I was like, I don't think, I don't think that's right. But he said David went to, to various trials theological seminary. <laughs> various trials theological seminary. And I wonder if some of us have been there as well. That we've been through trials and been through situations 
that have shaped our theology. David acknowledges that no matter where he goes, God is there. No matter where he flees, he can't flee from the Spirit of God. And that God is there to bring him comfort, guidance, and strength. So, I want you to imagine that blank canvas, which none of our canvases are blank, by the way. We've, we've read the Word. We've been taught about God. We, have, we know about God. But I want to make sure you have those, these two things on that canvas before you leave today that you know and trust that God is omniscient. He knows everything. So when that tragedy does happen, or when that rough patch of your life happens, you can say, God, you know, and so I trust you. Help me. And the second piece is that you know God is omnipresent. This matters because our sovereign God not only knows everything, but He is near to us. And... The only way to know Him this way, to have the nearness of God to us, the only way to experience discomfort and guidance is to have Christ as your Savior, right? You must trust in Him because if not, your sin bar- the sin barrier still clouds your view of, of Christ and of God. But if you're going to know Him and if you're going to experience the nearness of God and if you're going to have that comfort in your life, you must trust in Christ alone. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you a sheep of God? Have you heard the voice in your heart where he calls you through his word, and have you followed him through faith and trust? If so, he never leaves you. Listen to Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God, you are with me. Listen to a few other psalms as we close. As I just encourage you to think about your nearness to God this morning and his nearness to you. Psalm 119, 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And finally, Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I pray that you have made the Sovereign Lord your refuge and that you see this morning it is good to be near to God. Let's pray.